Um, this podcast is for informational purposes only, information relating to investment approaches or individual investments should not be construed as advice or endorsements. Any views expressed in this podcast are based upon the information available at the time and are subject to change. Um, hello, Tyler, and welcome back. We're here because of our bi-weekly research meeting, um, and we are going to talk about different things that have evolved in the market so far. Um, and again, uh, Tyler, do you want to introduce yourself? Sure. Um, I work as a quantitative macro analyst at uh, Canadian Asset Manager. Um, been here uh, a couple of times. Yeah, looking forward to talking. Great. Thank you so much, Tyler, and welcome back again. Um, so th- today we're going to talk about like different things that has been evolving in the market. Uh, we see that the distribution of vaccines have exponentially uh, increased across the Western countries. Um, we now have different uh, vaccine policies in regards to whether or not to have COVID passports and how to deal with um, the Delta variants that are coming uh fast and strong across uh, U.S. and the U.K. However, death rates have been uh, significantly less than when we uh, didn't have the vaccine. So what are your thoughts on that? And how do you think that will impact um, the economy um, in terms of our expectation uh, of returning back to work? And um, how will investors navigate that? Sure. Um, so speaking of the economic impact, what I think is that the economy would, would start uh, heating up more over time because of natural reopening and con- consumption. So economic growth would increase. But that's, that's being said, that's for the economic environment, not so much the market. Um, and uh, that's because the market it really, what it really is, is a discounting mechanism, right? The market discounts forward expectations, and reopening is something that we've expected from the market for a long time, right? It it got it, it was pretty much it was beginning to be priced in as early as last year with news of the uh, with the news of the vaccines. So I don't really think, in terms of market impact, the reopening would do anything, but it does have an economic impact. And that economic impact will be in, its, in, in the growth, right? That we'll see from, that we'll, that we'll see as a result of the reopening. <clears throat> and that growth could lead to a, a traditional economic, uh, coincident economic measures such as GDP um, increase increasing for the next quarter uh, to make up for the base effect lost from uh, COVID. And I think in terms of supply chain disruptions, most of it's going to be normalized over time as well as a result of reopening. But that, that, that really is just the economic impact and it's quite different from the market impact because I believe it's already priced in, it's not going to really change much. 
Okay. Very interesting. So you believe right now that every uh, possible scenarios are already priced in. Um, so that leads me to uh, my next question. So we've been, you know, like going back and forth between whether or not inflation is transitory um, and what does that mean for the rotation of value into tech or tech into value? Uh, so far, we have seen a recent rotation back into tech, whereas a month ago when we were talking, um, it was still very value focused. And big tech especially has seen um, quite a strong amount of growth. Um, and next to that, there's like the defensive stocks like Costco or Nike, um, those have increased like 30% or more year to date, which is very abnormal for the stocks like that. So what what do you think that means? Like, what do you think the market is saying? So uh, well, let's go back a bit. I don't think every scenario is pricing, right? I think every expected scenario is pricing. As in, the, as in the, what is the expected scenario is a smooth real thing. What is not priced in is potentially uh, some absolute, absolute disaster scenario where you get a new variant, not a Delta variant, Delta variant is right now, but like you get some new variant that for some reason the vaccine doesn't work against. That is not priced in, but that is a very tail scenario and it's not even worth considering. But just to clarify that not everything is priced in, it's that everything is, is, can be reasonably expected is priced in. And so to think about it from the, uh, the big tech perspective, um, well, and one thing I'd like to clarify is I, I personally don't like to use the terms tech and value in the same comparison because one, because it's not apples to apples comparison. It is really comparison between a style factor and a sector, and that's not really comparable. Well, but what, what is a style factor? Value is a style factor in that it describes the characteristics of a stock, right? Which is, uh, which is low valuations. Well, tech is a sector, so they're not directly comparable. It just so happens to be that tech is more growth and that value is more cyclical. As a result of market pricing over the last decade or so of quantitative easing. Now, there's nothing inherent about value that's contradictory with tech. But tech sector itself, due to the pricing and, and, and the technological growth, is more in line with growth, which is anti-value. So that's how you kind of get this relationship where people talk about growth and tech. I mean, growth and value and, with, and confuse that with tech and value. Um, that really is kind of something that the market that the, the, the market is talking about, but it's not actually accurate terminology to use, I think, to compare value and tech but that being said we did see a bit of a pause in value and why is that well that is due to expectations of interest rates going forward so what the market is expecting is a couple of things the market expecting more of a transitory inflation environment than before which we'll go into uh, later and the market is also expecting that the Fed is, might make a policy mistake by being overly hawkish, really, which would lead to uh, put, having to ease later on. Why is that? Well, I mean, the last time 
the Fed tried to hike. You got 2018, right, where the Fed had a policy mistake. So we, we had decades of not hiking, and market participants don't believe that the Fed can sustain a hiking cycle. And that's why in long-term interest rates has dropped. Well, the market is the long-term. One thing I'd like to also make clear is that I do not think that interest rates markets lead, lead equities. Equity mar- markets lead economic data. And, in, and since equity is a poor pricing mechanism, why would, why would it lag interest rates? That, that, that just does not make sense. So to me, what the market, so to me, it's at most a coincidence relationship between rates and equities, which sometimes equities even leading uh, rates. And the price and the equity market's expectations for these for, for these long term interest rates. This was driving the big tech versus um, the cyclicals story that we're seeing now with tech having a rally because the market expecting more of a transitory environment, and so this ends also pricing down. Uh, so it's pricing down interest rates, which is beneficial for tech due to. The fact that it has long duration from its cash flows, as well as this growth characteristics. Meanwhile, for cyclicals, right, and plus, if you're expecting a policy mistake, right, that's anti-cyclical. And with cyclicals, what you're really seeing is the reverse of that, right? Where we've seen a very positive relationship between cyclicals and market expectations of long-term interest rates, and that as a result. You get you come a pause in cyclicals, but that being said, though, what what that that being said, cyclical there's the depth of value I think lately has been exaggerated, been grossly exaggerated. It's, it had a phenomenal year, right? Really has phenomenal year, and of course you cannot expect one style factor to completely dominate year in and year out. Every single year, that's very rare. And so, even if we're in a in in a new value regime, you won't be able to know if this is a value regime until a few years after a fact, and you look back on a longer term performance, right? And so, it really, is nobody knows, but it is true that the big tech has caught up over time, and that is be largely because of the expectations of interest rates and of the monetary policy. Hmm, that's very interesting. So, um, in in that case, you're seeing that we're not really um, like in summary. What does that mean? What that really means is, is right now tech is catching up because the market is pressing in a transitory environment with sustained easing, right? Because the market is not pressing in hike in an extended hiking cycle. Because of the flat of the flatness of the race curve, right? So what we're really saying is that the market is telling you that big tech benefits from low from low inflation and and easy monetary policy, which is something that we've known that that's been well known. But that but the reason that big tech's going up is because markets expecting this macro event to occur. So what this really telling you is that the market that the market is expecting a short hike, a short hiking cycle at best, 
and, and transfer inflation. At least for now. Very interesting. Okay. Um, and then that means that there's going to be um, a continuation of uh, value over value overperforming, like outperforming tech. Um, and what do you think that would mean for, you know, oil, semiconductor, financials, and the other industry that are part of the that value um, sector? So, um, for value, value outperformance is not guaranteed. It's just a right now it's a, it's a thesis, and I, I have strong belief behind the thesis because I do not believe inflation transfer, and I do think we'll have a more extended hiking cycle. And so that's that's why I think value outperform. Plus, not over the long run, value uh, value has uh, it's, it's, it's an alpha factor, so it does provide risk premium over. Uh, it does provide risk premium over growth. Right, growth has been terrible over the long, long run, and it when the spread increases, you can expect some some sort of mean reversion. I mean, well. For and for value sector, I, I like again. I, I don't like to call those value sectors. It's, it's just, it just so happens to be that some of those names are value. Um, oil, actually, a lot, a lot, a lot of energy names are not quite value anymore. I mean, they are. They might be back to value against some of the names, but really, they're not, right? Um, because they had such a stellar run over the last year. Um, at one point, it was up forty percent. Right um, now, it came back a lot. And it's just wait. For, um, we have to wait for uh, new measurements and new cycles to see if whether or not they'll make it into a value basket. But they're cyclical related baskets, which and like I said, it just so happens to cyclical and value is aligned right now. A lot of things actually momentum. But that being said, what I think is, I think we will see. Rec- I mean, energy wasn't always this uh, had. It wasn't always such a small part of the S&P, right? It used to be a large, much larger portion of the index than it is now. And, and, and valuations historically have been much higher for energies and energies names than it has been for than been now. And same with a lot of cyclical sectors, valuations used to be a lot higher. And so if we do expect extended um, uh, value or cyclical outperformance, depending on, on the terminology you want to use, what we'll see is a normalization of the valuations, right? In these cyclical sectors. And with normalization, there's a lot more room to go, right? The cyclical sectors have been underperforming for a very long time. And there's a lot of room to revert. And with with, with ratings, right? We might might see, it's not out of the realm of possibility to see a 20% plus performance in these names every single year for a few years, right? It's, that's not out of the realm of possibility, just to mean revert. Mm-hmm. So what we're seeing now is a mean reversion rather than it saying something about like fundamentally change about the current macroeconomic landscape. Well, well, is it, no, the macro, the change in the macroeconomic landscape, if we do see it, it will be from a change in macroeconomic economic landscape but but and that's a very important but 
the change in macroeconomic landscape is what's driving their mean reversion, right? Because for mean reversion to happen, that's what that, a part of what people usually get wrong about mean reversion is that they just expect mean reversion to happen because it's like, oh, like this is a long term average, and you expect you to uh, go back to to the long term average, but that's not actually the case because. So for mean reversion to really occur, you need a catalyst, right? To prompt the mean reversion. And I believe the catalyst is an extended hiking cycle, right? And increase in interest rates. So that's what I really think it's going to drive the mean reversion. So it's not so much that it's because of mean reversion that this is not going to happen. What, is, what I'm saying is that because of mean reversion, it's gonna it, because of the macro change in macro regime, that's gonna drive the mean reversion, and the mean and the variance from the mean basically tells you how much change, how what's the change that you can expect, right? So. Hmm, interesting, very interesting. So there has also been quite a a lot of talk about like the potential of the emerging markets. Mm-hmm. As in the beginning of the year, and now that um, half the year has gone by, uh, after a few Chinese IPOs of like BD, um, we have seen a few crackdown from the Chinese government in its own stock. So, for example, um, you know, Tal, the education holdings, they uh, focus purely on. Um, uh, they focus purely on private tutoring, and year to date, that company um, drops ninety three percent since its peak in February, um, and just recently it went down seventy percent in a day as well. Um, and you know, like con- uh, another part is uh, DD and Alibaba, they're also seeing significant sell off. So. What are your thoughts on China banning tech, especially right after its IPO this year in the U.S. markets? Well, the thing to think about China is that China works very differently from the U.S. in plus regulatory and political environment, right? Um, political systems aside, China works on a very long, a much longer time scale than the U.S. Right? Because the U.S. you have your election cycles, right? That is four years. For, for the presidency and and you have election cycles in congress right parties come and go policies come and go so there's not so the focus is much on more medium term or short term planning than china right china is focused more on longer term um, policy and i i really do think that the, uh, the the crackdown on tech is a part of that longer term policy because uh, china what china expects is that if they were to regulate tech, this is as good as time as ever, right? Because if you wait to regulate tech, uh, it's going to be too late, right? Tech is going to get too big. It's, it's going to be too big to fail, right? right? Right now, it's still not too big to fail. Like, it's, it's on the edge of too big to fail in China. It, and so that, that that's one big part of it. Um, it's a much longer time scale. There's a lot of regulatory issues that has to be addressed when it comes to tech in the coming years. And they're they're just addressing it ahead of time, and so that's that's a very that that's a very important part to think about of what the uh, the reg, what, what the how the regulatory environment is working. 
if they work a much longer time scale, they don't really care whether or not it hurts the markets right now. They 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 do not care because I mean they they just work on such a longer time scale than the U.S. It's much shorter time scale. But that but that being said, um, going back to emerging market, yeah, emerging markets it's always been attractive, uh, attractive market. I mean. Whether or not the returns have, have been good in emerging markets is is uh is yet to be seen. But the but and from 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 analyst perspective, emerging markets are incredibly attractive because emerging mar- well, emerging markets have low positioning, right? It's not crowded at all, right? Low positioning, uh, low, much lower valuations, and high growth potential. Um, than than uh, U.S. But why has U.S. been so good over the past decade or so? Well, that's really is because of tech, right? That's something the emerging markets does not have, and tech benefit a lot from the past macro environment, right? So that in turn is what that's why I see dominance in U.S. equities. But from from other measures, right? Emerging markets is incredibly attractive. So, emerging markets is something that is that that is I, I think is something that's for every single investor. Yeah, yeah, you, you have to really. It, it's been something that people aren't willing to to invest in because they haven't seen the returns. It's been a widowmaker. You have not seen the returns. People who went big in emerging markets no longer have a job as a result of uh, this poor return. So it's few hesitant. But the hesitancy is also breeds opportunity for evaluation for valuations. So no, so 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 I, what I should recommend is that if you have career risk, emerging markets is not very good right now, right? I said you should be a professional investor and you're looking for a place to invest, do not do emerging markets. But if you're a personal investor have a much longer time scale, I would I would I would buy emerging markets because that it has has such attractive qualities over the very long um from ec- economic perspective. Mm-hmm. Why do you think China choose now to start implementing these crackdown and ban of their own biggest, most profitable industry, especially right after it has been listed on the U.S. exchange? Well, um, so I'm going to speak a bit about the, the DD situation because that is unique. That That isn't because... Okay, so so this so nobody really knows like why DD got 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 a regulatory slapped the way it did. Um, I mean the time it did, right? No, nobody knows. Uh, I, I and it's all pure speculation. Pure speculation. But that being said, in terms of the pure speculation of DD, a couple of theories. I mean, one one theory is kind of. Uh, people are, I don't know. Mm, people, people are saying that the reason is because they don't really care what happens to the U.S. market, right? It gets listed, boom, and and then they just wait for DD to reap the money and they slap them with a regulatory ban. This this theory is that they don't want the data and technology to be spread to uh, for U.S. against hands on data on the data and technology. But what 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 is the most believable theory to me is that DD has been warned, right? DD has been warned about this data practices and, monop- and monopolistic practices for a while, right? DD has been sufficiently warned, and 
it's kind of and but the thing is reg, regulation and enforcement are two different things right and so i think what has what happened in my personal opinion with dd is that dd knew that a regulatory crackdown is going to happen sooner or later so what it's i do is just rush the ipo in the u.s to try to get money from it before it's too late right because once the crackdown happens they're not getting any money um so they try to rush it in the u.s to to get money and then and the Chinese government wasn't very happy with that, you know, because it's open, it's essentially open defiance to the policies. They immediately came out with, um, uh, with regulatory action against DD, right? So I, I really think that they have, they have been sufficiently warned, and that and so that and that's what drove the decision to rush the IPO in the first place, right? In the U.S., because they thought, oh, like in the U- U.S., there's not much the government can, uh, so so. I don't have to go jump through regulatory holes and um, hoops in, uh, in China with A shares. Yeah. So that, that, that's why I, I think they're, they're, they're rushing it right, to try to get money. And then whatever happens now, they have a stack of cash from the IPO so they can uh, you know, rebuild uh, and recover from policy action. Well, I mean, in general, right? Couple uh, the actions, uh, uh, regulatory action, law comes with from the perspective of monopolistic practices, right? Because Chinese tech has been dominated by really two two sides, right? Alibaba and Tencent. It's a duopoly, and China does have antitrust laws. China only has, so China has historically has allowed monopolies, but only if, no, not not allowed it, but like kind of blind eye to it in terms of enforcement, if they're able to to make significant amounts of money, right, in the U.S. or, or I mean, abroad, right, making a significant international revenue. And then these companies do make significant international revenue, and that's why they've avoided regulatory action for so long. But the direction is changing in China. China's now focused more on internal right, development, right, rather than, than the uh, export focus it had before. And so the internal development it, it is taking the bigger focus on antitrust laws, right, than it has before. So, and that's why it cracked down on Alibaba um, so heavily, right? And especially, and especially with Jack Ma's personality, it, it makes it an easy target for a crackdown, right? The most outspoken, loudest voice just gets slapped across the face, right? It's just an example for everyone else. And, but Tencent, they're actually smart. They just complied and pretty much got away with it. Um, yeah, so, so that's that, that's a big part of it. it it's, it's an increased focus on antitrust laws that they've really turned blind eye to in the past, right? The law was already the, the law was always there. They, they just didn't enforce it until now. And the same thing in the US. The law is there. It's just it's not being enforced. Um, and the reason they choose to enforce it now rather than later, yeah, a domestic yeah, is also due to domestic focus, right? Um, domestic focus due to the fact that tech with the advances in tech and AI, right? If they, if they don't put a stop to it now, it'll, it'll be too late, right? Well, I don't know if, if people don't really talk about this, but one thing that's really interesting about China's tech is, did you know that already China is the leading country in terms of, of literature, uh, in terms of peer re- uh, citations for AI uh, research literature, right? Really? They, yeah. They're, they they, they um, are now ahead of the U.S. For, in terms of peer citations. So the, the best, re, the top research, right, the best research still, the very, very, very best research still comes from the U.S., 
But there's more good research out of China now than before. And that's people, they're not, like, it's, it's, China's an AI superpower. Right? And that's because of heavy, heavy, heavy government investment. Right? And also, so, so I'm going to get off topic for a bit so for the China, so China tech ban, because I think it's really important to set the stage of the Chinese tech. So do you remember a couple years ago with, when AlphaGo beat, uh, beat uh, a Korean uh, Go player called Lee Sedo, right? Do you remember mm-hmm. that? Uh, one of the best yep. Go players in the world. And then afterwards, there's a Chinese player called Kejie that, um, that, also, that, that, that at the time was the best player in the world and lost every single match against AlphaGo. Mm-hmm. And so at the time, China was stunned. The government censored the games. And China was absolutely stunned. And, I, and right now, there's a lot of speculation from analysts where that what happened was that the Chinese military right, uh, and government officials took notice of these. And, and, and it was for them, it was like a Sputnik moment. Well, for Kant, it was a Sputnik moment. It was, it's basically when the US, the Soviet Union launched the Sputnik satellite, right? Mm-hmm. Um, it became the first satellite to be launched. What that really showed the U.S. was also advances in missile technology, right? From uh, from uh, the USSR and the U.S. thought it was behind in terms of rocketry, and which is which led to the the uh, the founding of NASA and the space race. So what happened was that China has its own Sputnik moment when AlphaGo beat uh, Kajia and uh, and so what the speculation was that Chinese officials, both the go- uh, government and military took notice and realized the potential of AI in terms of policy as in terms of and in terms of policy in terms of military in terms of and, uh, and battlefield applications for the military and and for policy and for civilian applications in general so China took notice instantly and invested uh, trillions right really trillions into AI well, I mean not yet but like the plans for trillions and so China's goal is to be the is to be the leading AI superpower, right? Because it's, it has seen what AI can do. It's it beat potentially be the best player in the world in potentially the most complex game that people thought was unbeatable for computers, uh, unsolvable mm-hmm. for computers, and it won, and it won easily. And, and, and not just that, it got better and better and better as it played, right? So mm-hmm. that so China really decided AI was the future. And put a ton of money into AI. And that really, I think, is why Chinese tech, the, te- the technology has grown so much over time, right? And also, another part of it is that culturally, China is more willing to accept AI, right? Uh, Chinese consumers are more willing to accept AI than US consumers. Let me give you so, AI is already used very widely, right, in, in China, right? Um, because the concerns with data privacy aren't really a thing because people just assume that, that their data is being monitored anyways, right? So they don't really care. So, so people don't really care about data privacy because they assume that like, it's not private anyways. And, and with the use of phones, right, for basically everything, right? Like you're in China, if, you're in, if you go to China, having a wallet won't do you any good, right? Because if you want to buy stuff, you pay using your phone. And so... Like, like, and, and, and people are just more willing to use AI and, and these new te- technologies, and, and it's easier to gather, gather data. And the government's willing to use, more willing to use AI 
and and I want to just speak another example, a big difference between willingness to use AI, okay? Medicine, for example, right? If you ask Americans whether or not they're willing to you to have an AI doctor, right? Americans, no, because why? Because right now, for, for us, right, we have a family doctor, right? I have a family doctor who I go and see when I have, when I have problems, right? Um, and he knows me personally. I've known him for like, I think like 16 years now. I've known him for 16 years, right? I know him since I was nine. And I same doctors for 16 years. Um, lots of conversations with him. He knows my everything about my medical history, essentially, right? Because I I, I always went to him. Um, besides when I had when I was sick at university, and you still have this relationship with doctor. But in China, there's just so many people. You, you, you're not you're not having a family doctor, right? So you go to the hospital, you line up, the doctor sees you for two minutes and you go, right? No, no time for conversation, right? And, mm-hmm. and, and it's basically, and, and, and it was so fast and efficient. And so that, and so what's really, and then what's really the difference being seeing a doctor you barely know for two minutes versus getting AI, right? Like, well, like practically from, what's the difference? You don't have a relationship with that doctor, right? You don't, you don't know him. He doesn't know you. Right, you're just another patient in the line of hundreds. Right, they see hundreds of patients a day. So, 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 due to the population size, the interpersonal aspect of a lot of things gets decreased. So, which is why AI is more willing to get accepted for services. Right, because you're not you're not getting customized service <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> unless unless you're very very powerful and connected. So, it's more willing to accept AI in general. Um, yeah. And so that's why AI has seen such growth from both the government, military, and commercial side. It's, and now it is, and there is, it is an AI superpower. U.S. still has the best technology, but China's coming up with more and more innova- innovations, right? And if you think about the three, right now, right now, the, the three most powerful AI models. One is Google's DeepMind, right? Um, Open right. AI GPT three, and then there is. Uh, people don't know about this, but the Beijing Academy of Artificial Intelligence has came up with a new model, right, with trillions of parameters, and and it's, and it's set to compete with what well, it's the goal is to compete with DeepMind and GPT three, so it's getting up there, right? Um, and with, and so China has advancing a lot in tech, and so what it's seeing is that it. Going back to its regulatory ban, the reason it's banning tech right now, I mean, like limited tech right now, is it's limit the power. It's to limit the power of these companies, right? China doesn't want to a situation where the companies are just too big to fail, um, they, and and they lose power to these corporations, right? In terms of Chinese culture and China, and the way that this society works is that the the state comes first, right? The state is always the most powerful. It. So you cannot have so they cannot allow a situation where companies get more powerful than the state, right? And they see that as potentially in the future. So, they, they, so they're going to curb the power of these companies now. When so so they didn't do it before, right? Because they didn't want to hamper the growth. But now they're at a stage where they believe that the growth has enough momentum to continue, even if they try, they actually think they can actually get a better growth environment if they cut them off, uh, if they cut down the monopoly, right? 
So yeah, Tencent and Alibaba have been duopolistic for too long, and now mm-hmm. and now it's, it's it's now or never, right? And Chinese and Chinese regulatory action comes yeah faster and swifter than the U.S. Right? because it's not a democratic system, right? So it comes faster and swifter, and it really is in my opinion stuff the U.S. really should have done. <laughs> right, but it just doesn't have the political drive behind it. It's, the system doesn't work the same way. Not enough long-term thinking. So, uh, so I, I think even though it looks bad now, I, I, I personally think, in my, my opinion, the regulatory, uh, China, China's uh, tech regulations are a good thing, right, in the long run. Um, but it's, but the market is going to feel the pain, right? and that's what we're really seeing in Chinese tech. Mm-hmm. And, and also, uh, to speak of the, the education thing that you mentioned, right? Why is it cracking down on education? I don't know too much about that, but from what I understand, the reason they're cracking down on the education sector is because they want more... Ev- so right now, how China, 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 um, how it works is that the school system is extremely competitive, right? To, to get in, so so this, if, you, if you want a good future, what you have to do is to study very hard at a very young age and to test in to a middle school, right? A top middle school, and then and then you go and then and then and then, and then, and then in that middle school you have to be in the best class, right? Because the classes top are different, just different classes, right? And so if you're in the in this in the best class, you get the best teachers, right? You know, um, and 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 then and then what you do is then then you test into the best high school, right? And and then rise there to go to the best class at the best high school, and then you go and do the Gaokao, which is the national examinations, which is Roots in doubt that was thousands of years in history, but it was the national exam, examination to go to university. That then then you had to score very high on that to get to get into a good university, right? To have a good job. Mm-hmm. Otherwise, like you, you, like if you screw up on your Galcal, you're 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 kind of screwed, like for life, right? Like you know. So there's a commitment along the way. So what happens is that there's these companies, right? Chinese parents pay exorbitant amounts of money, right, to these education companies. To like basically like help their kids like prep for these tests, which leads to which leads to a situation where you get um in a lot of inequality right with the half and half knots right because you, you don't have much money you're not, you're not gonna be afford to the best you're not gonna be afford after school tutoring right and stuff and then you, you know and so and so which causes a lot of education inequality so what China is doing to address that is just basically um I think they're removing the middle school entrance exam. Um, and then, yeah, so the middle school entrance is going from going to middle school. And so it's going to be, middle school is going to be based, off, I believe, on lottery system. And then, yeah, and they're coming down to education policies, on education companies, basically as a way to achieve more education equality, right? To make, to, to, to basically just give more opportunities to, to the have-nots, right? For, for, to rise in education, because it's just so competitive that you, that's, I mean, you always hear stories about how these, like, Poor village kids score very high on Galcao and just go to the uh, the best university, but like that's rare. Like most of the time, like if, if you have money, you, you afford a good tutoring company, right? You, you're pretty set. Like you, I can't. I can, okay, let's put it this way: I moved to I moved from China when I was nine years old. Okay, even 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 nine years old, I I, I went to I I went and got after school tutoring often. Um, I had homework till late at night, right? And then I was I was like nine years old. And and yeah, it, uh, I had more homework when I was nine years old than when I was. Then 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 for the moment, then it, I haven't had that much work until university. <laughs> okay, my entire mm-hmm. elementary high school life here has been 
chill. I've been very chill right in Canada. But and then I have friends in China who basically study like you know until like mid- midnight every single day and have like no free time right, at all. Um, it's such a high pressure environment, and and that's why they they don't don't believe this education system is sustainable in the long run. Um, what especially with the inequality, which is why they're cracking on education companies, right? To ban weekend tutoring. I think they're banning weekend tutoring. Right? Um, yeah, it, it's, a, it's part of uh, education reform in China. And so, so that's separate from the tech crackdown. It, and the reason it's happening now is, I mean, China's country to really just escape from the COVID, the COVID recession, right? It, it, it escaped COVID recession economically. So they see us opportunities, like, you know, just, and so they have long-term vision, so they don't really care why that they're taking a growth hit in the short term for it. Mm-hmm. Interesting, interesting. That is very cool. So I think this kind of reminds me of, um, like, like uh, the Bitcoin ban that they had as well. Um, yeah, because how- for, the, for the central bank digital currency, they they, they don't want too many. Because if you have too many currencies floating around, right, it's gonna it's gonna devalue your your currency, right? And they're exactly. really a central bank digital currency. It's like they don't want to go back in a time where it's like, I don't know if you know this, but uh, before cen- uh, central government fiat currency, how currency worked was the currency was issued by banks, right? So by banks individually. So so there, there used to be thousands of currencies flowing around in just the UK. I mean, not thousands, but like hundreds flowing around in just the UK, right? Because each bank issued their own. They don't, they don't want to get a situation where anyone can just issue your currency or issue a currency and 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 they don't want a situation where you know people can just issue their own securities with a government regulation. This really is what ICOs are. <laughs> um they don't want they don't they don't want to bloat, they don't want a whole bunch of scams. So and plus they're protecting the central bank digital currency, which is the most important part of it. Which is why there's a lot of crackdown on crypto. Right. I, I, I can assure you. That in, well, not assure you, but in my personal opinion, when when central bank digital currencies become a thing in like the U.S., you're going to see the same crackdown with Bitcoin. The Fed is not going to allow Bitcoin to get un- go unchecked when they have the central bank digital currency. Just, it's just they don't have it yet. They don't know how to deal with it, which is why uh, they haven't done anything. Mm-hmm. Interesting, very interesting. Yeah, like I speaking about like currencies, I think China has been very frustrated with. The situation with USD like if you want to do business in Hong Kong or China um, they actually have to use USD as something that is stable enough to measure value um, and I, I noticed that China has been you know mining a lot of gold they also have been importing a lot of gold as well which kind of makes me think that maybe they want to new they want to be the new currency and by doing that they want to um, have the gold standards for for their yen again so what do you think about that oh um yeah that's actually a, a, a bit, i think a big theme for the future and i think there's a topic we should delve into in a future discussion, because it's such a big topic, but I think that's yeah. really the defining uh, conflict of the, uh, it's, it's really the defining conflict of the 21st, uh, of the 21st century, which is going to be the battle for for the reserve currency, right? Mm-hmm. It, it, it's really the US dollar 
versus versus i mean i mean i think i think the euro's decline currency is even though the euro is better and is stronger than the yuan in terms of um the potential to be a reserve currency now is declining mm-hmm. um but it really is a battle for currency because whoever determines the reserve currency has this the term supremacy and the yeah. u.s the u.s economy is entirely dependent on the fact that the U.S. dollar is the world reserve currency, right? Mm-hmm. If tomorrow the U.S. dollar is no longer the world reserve currency, the U.S. economy will collapse entirely. The monetary policy is not sustainable, right? It, it, it completely knows the policy tools. It, the economy will completely just collapse. They, right. they, and there's nothing the U.S. can do about it. And right. so, and, and what really is the power of the U.S. currency and the, the U.S. currency is based on the fact that the U.S. is the strongest superpower in the world, right? Um, so that's why the U.S. dollar is world reserve currency, and and China's ambitions isn't to be number two, right? China doesn't want to be number two and sub and subservient to the U.S. China wants to be the most powerful. And if if you if your if your if your goal is to become the most powerful country in the world, which is and it's called the, I think it's called, it's like the China dream, right? That's what the government calls it. If that's the China dream, then like, are, are you going to accept? That another country's current, a rival country's currency is the world reserve currency. Of course not. No sort of power will accept that. Right? And, and, and that's and that's going to be a big hurdle for China to cross bef- before they become the dominant superpower. Right? Is to is right. to battle the U.S. dollar, and yeah, and and that's that's why they're doing central bank digital currency. Central bank and central bank digital currency is a huge part of it. another part is commodities markets as trading. Um, the trade in yuan, right? Doing business in yuan—that's such a big part of the plan. Yeah, that's totally true. Yeah. So to wrap up the point on China, how do you think China stocks are gonna recover after this massive drawdown in the market? That—that's hard to say. Um, my, uh, Chinese market uh, is extremely difficult to predict. There's so much. Uncertainty and non-economic factors involved. Um, so I, I, w- I wish I knew, but uh, I really don't. <laughs> um, I, I, most people, I, I think, can agree that it's easier to get graphs of the Chinese economy than it is to get graphs of. Uh, it's easier to get graphs of the Chinese economy than it is to try to get graphs of the Chinese market. Right. Fair enough. So. Um... That leads us to our final question for the podcast. We'll talk about uh, the fun thing that is going on right now, which is the billionaire space race. Mm-hmm. So just this week, we had Jeff Bezos um, launching himself into space. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think his um, his debut to space have caused a lot of introverse controversies, but it also... Um, opens a lot of doors for commercial space travels as well so what are what are your thoughts on that and um, do you think that it's overly excessive for them to go to space or it's actually good for humanity mm-hmm. well I, I I think okay so, so there is a couple of, uh, of things to talk about with this so the main thing is what well, it is whether or not how, how, it's whether or not this is the defining moment for the space race. So I I, I do think yes, it, it, it is right, and that um, it's such a big profile 
right? Uh, it's just a big profile, uh, big big profile event in terms of civilian space travel. But 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 there's a lot of debate on whether or not they actually went to actual space. Like I mean, in definition, yes, they kind like, in the strictest definition of space, they went to space, right? Like in terms of how, how much how what NASA defines to be space. But they really went to space for a few seconds, right? Like just above what was considered space for you and came back down, right? Um, so that now, so it's in terms of te- te- uh, technology, it wasn't a big leap forward in technology. Nowhere near what the Tesla rocket launch was. Nowhere near um, going back to yeah, the Saturn V, right? Uh, rockets to the moon, right? Going to the moon, New Armstrong, the Apollo missions. In terms of technological leap, it's, it's not that big. But what it is, is a lot of, it's a high-profile right, event. Um, whether or not it's good for... Uh, what the space, the, the, uh, space, the private space race is definitely good for society in terms of, in terms of technological development. And, going, and trust to link it back to the previous discussion, a lot of actually... China's, a lot of Chinese private companies are actually trying to do the same thing um, to enter the space race. But I, I digress. Um, so... Whether, whether or not this is good for humanity in terms of technology, yes, but it does provide a lot of danger, right? What is the side effect of a lot of space uh, development? Space waste, right? You have a lot of waste in space, and why is that an issue? Right? Because you have, if you have a lot of waste floating around in low Earth orbit, um, it basically makes it extremely, it basically makes it more dangerous to go to space in the future, right? Because the space debris travel at very high speeds. So even a very small piece of grief can cause a lot of damage, right? And so, if we're not careful with, with, with uh, if we're not careful with this, what we end up in a situation where we just have so much space waste that going to space would just would not be uh, feasible anymore in the future. So I really think we need to solve the space race, the space waste problem before the space race really starts heating up, right? Because the, the, the waste in space is being created faster and faster right, on the exponential scale. And that is one thing to really, to really be aware of. If we're not careful, space will be a, far, will be a far-fetched dream right, for humanity. Right. And, whether, and I think whether or not we'll see commerce, private space travel, uh, not immediately. I mean, I... I I, I can't really see enough people paying that much money right, to go to space for just a few seconds. Not now. But it does signal to develop a new industry. But in terms of whether or not you should invest in that, no, I, <laughs> yeah, we, I think we discussed it last time where I, I do not think it's investable yet. Um, but yeah, uh, it, 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 has, it has, has pros and cons. right? Um, but I think this is it does, this is nowhere near the event that Apollo missions were, so, but but people have been hyped up to be kind of like that. Mm-hmm. Hmm. Very interesting point of view, um, more realistic point of view than a lot of the uh, Wall Street batters have been uh, pumping it out to be. Like they have been trading uh, SBCE and causing it to rise a hundred percent, but also have a drawdown. 70 percent in just one month so you can see that there's a lot of craze around it but nonetheless um this was a great conversation again tyler and 
it's always amazing to hear your opinion. Um, so this wraps up our podcast for today. 